can we say is your table? Table? Oh, oh, oh it's yeah. Dynamite. <laughs> I love it's like, it. what are you, like a database table? Or what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, like a... Not everything's about cold, like Chris. <laughs> I believe that's part of my brand, yes. Uh, Not everything's software all the time. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Chris? Sort of new with us and with uh, The Bike Shed in general, but we have a new logo and a new website and a whole bunch of new things. Hopefully, if you are out there listening to us, the moving of the RSS feed that makes this show up in your podcatcher worked. So yeah, hoping that happened. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, lots of new stuff. I like how you said, if you're listening to us, it's well, a mean, question. If they're not, then how would they hear this? Exactly. They, they won't be hearing us. <laughs> we'll just see, did we have a huge <laughs> drop off in listeners? Like, where'd they go? Just uh, disappeared. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've moved over to Fireside. Yes. And we have lots of new, fun, shiny things. So we have some fun pictures on the site. We've got a new logo, which is a big deal. Indeed. Would you say that we spoke very little about the logo in terms of figuring out what colors it should be? I think we were super on brand and we bike shedded the color of the bike shed. A hundred percent. And I didn't even realize that till now when we were just looking at some of the changes. It's like, oh yeah, we just, we definitely bike shedded that because we went through, because several of the designers here at ThoughtBot have been working on updating the colors and designs for a number of the podcasts that we have. So the bike shed was one of those that was also getting the design. So it's definitely a team effort with Eric and Elena, Kyle and Lindsay, who have been working hard to update the design. And we had several rounds. I know of at least like three, four different designs that I looked at and we were all like, that looks really great. I love the new bike. I love the new font that we're using. But the color was the one that we were, that I know I was considering as to which one to use because we were moving away from the yellow, but the yellow feels so nostalgic for me. But it is kind of a mustardy yellow. So there was a lot of debate as to what yellow to use. And then there's the McDonald territory that we were getting into with yellow and red and a ThoughtBot red. So yeah, kudos to us for bike shedding the, the color of our bike shed. So the one thing that I personally focused on during the discussion was just the emphasis of ThoughtBot in it. It's something that we've tried to bring a little bit more into the conversation because I think it grounds the conversations that we're having. It gives context for what we're doing. Uh, and it's sort of the point of the show in a small way is to highlight that we are developers here at ThoughtBot. So I really wanted to encourage that. But I actually purposefully tried to step back from the more design aesthetic conversations. I had a similar like, I'm kind of attached to the yellow, but for, you know, bike sheddy reasons. So whatever. But I, I purposefully recognize that there were a bunch of people who are very, very capable designers and far better than me. So I was like, it doesn't even really matter what I think. I'm just, as long as I'm not like very opposed, I'm just going to let that portion of the conversation go because I think it's, it will be better without another cook in the kitchen. And I feel good about that. That felt like the right decision to me to stop talking. So you're saying I bike shedded the color. <laughs> no, I think you were one of the people bringing a good voice to that conversation. I just didn't think it needed also my voice. I talk too much as it is. So uh, I figured I would talk a little bit less. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But yeah, it's it's really awesome. Very excited. And I love the picture that Tom picked out for us and put on the cover. So if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. And it's just it's kind of like the vibe of the show to bring a lot of fun to the conversations that we have not taking ourselves too seriously. That's bikeshed.fm if you do want to see it. It was funny because I think Tom shared it and he was like, what do you think of this picture? We can obviously change it out. And everyone was like, we are not changing that picture. So if you haven't taken a look, let's uh, head on over to the website and see what we chose. 
But anyway, uh, so that that's true. What else? Uh, what else is up in your world? Oh, I finally downloaded the Carabiner Elements software that you recommended that I use for my Leopold keyboard. So there are the function keys up top, and I really miss some of the hotkeys that I had, like with my Keychron. That one comes with a number of them already programmed in because it's really meant for like a Mac setup. So I already have a lot of like the screen brightener and dimmer as well as the volume keys that are on there. And with my Leopold keyboard, I couldn't figure out if the function keys would give me that capability. And out of the box, it doesn't seem to give me that capability. But with the software that you recommended, I finally had some time today to play with it. So I downloaded the software and I am so excited. I can now control the volume from my keyboard. So the world feels great again. (laughs) And you've got the excellent mechanical response every time you type. You've got the best of all the worlds. It's getting there. I'm excited to play more with that because I've only, so that's as far as I've made it. I've just added the sort of volume up and down keys so I can have access to that for my keyboard. But there's so much more I can do with it. There's all the function keys and I haven't decided what to map them to. And using the software has been pretty friendly where I downloaded it and it shows me by default what a lot of the keys are. It was interesting or a little confusing at first because I went to a particular section to see what all the function keys are currently mapped to. And it just tells me that it's using the default, but I don't actually know what the default is. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in that. Uh, Yep. (laughs) That makes sense. So Uh, that part didn't feel as helpful. So I was changing those thinking I could change the default to something else, but that wasn't seeming to persist. It wasn't actually changing the behavior of those keys. So I went to a separate section called simple modifications. And there I could actually add an item, I could specify the key, and then I could specify what that key is supposed to do. And that worked. So still figuring out if I'm doing it the right way or not. But so far, it's working. So I think that it's been a little confusing, but they do have documentation. And so I just read the documentation and that's helping me get through. That will uh, not always, but often get you there. Yeah, it's, I think, an incredibly powerful piece of software that I'm using for like two little things. In my recent days, I've gotten more and more purposeful about like, don't don't try and do everything. Stop. Just stop playing with all the bells and whistles. I shared on Twitter the other day that I've been using ZSH Autosuggest, which is an extension to the ZSH shell where it can it basically finds the most recent command in history that matches what you've typed so far and provides like a hint of that ahead of your cursor. It's apparently a feature of the fish shell by default. I actually did know that. And someone immediately on Twitter was like, just so you know, or actually said it in a very positive, very friendly way. But I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not allowed to play with other shells, though. That's like, I can't, I'm not allowed to go onto Emacs. I'm not allowed to try out a new shell. I'm not allowed to spend too much time with Carabiner. Just know that these are rabbit holes of productivity that I will fall into for questionable outcomes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you just disappear for like a week or something at a time, I'll realize you've fallen off what the technical wagon. <laughs> yep. My beard is 10 times longer and I just look very haggard. But now my Vim config is perfect. Finally. <laughs> no, I can't be trusted with that sort of time. Got to time box these efforts. That's really funny. I uh, I did notice along with the Carabiner Element software, there's an event viewer that you can open up and it shows you all the up and down presses of your keys, all those actions, which is pretty fun. I have no idea why I would use it, but I just found myself like clicking keys and watching it because at first it was showing me two entries for each key and it took me a second to realize that it's showing me the down and up press of the key. I'm like, huh, that's really cool. I don't know what to do with that, (laughs) but that's cool. I think it's basically the goal is to say, like, if you have a keyboard that you don't fully understand that, like, you're on a Mac, but it's a Windows type keyboard, what is the actual signal that it's sending through when you press any of those? Like, what if you press the Windows key on a Windows keyboard, but you're connected to a Mac? What does that do? 
And in theory, there is like your OS is recognizing or is getting both of those signals. So it's like, if you really want to lean into this, and you want to really get after it, you can, I've seen someone who did an, a, a particularly extreme configuration where they wanted to learn to touch type. They wanted to really encourage themselves to do that. And so one of the things about touch typing is you should use the alternate hands shift key to capitalize a letter. So if you're capitalizing the letter P, which is on the right side of your keyboard, you should use the left shift and then hit P because that's a way to touch type much more quickly. But most people do one-handed. Like I use the same hand on the same side. So I would use my right pinky to do shift and then hit P, that sort of thing. And so everything is the one hand making kind of a claw grip out of my right hand. And so he made it so that that didn't work. He basically unmapped shift for the wrong side and it forced him like his letters would not capitalize properly for a while. And so he just had to like learn the new muscle memory. That's Steve Losh is the person who did that. I can probably track down the blog post where he wrote about it. It was a lengthy blog. He writes some amazing things on online. He wrote Learn VimScript the Hard Way, which is a probably the best book on VimScript. Not that there are that many, but he wrote the one that I know of. <laughs> yeah, that's a really cool way to help yourself train is to basically remove your access to whatever your default is. So that way you have to lean into that new approach. It would be neat. I um, imagine there's something that does this where it would show how many keys you're not perhaps missing, but what are the most common keys you're using and the, the combination and if there are recommendations around typing a proper way and then it sort of like highlights that to you because if it's tracking all my keystrokes, that would be kind of cool feedback to have. Like there's one, I think it's Grammarly who does this, that it's a service that I pay for that will check for all, all your grammatical mistakes and give you tips and highlights and help you correct everything. They'll also send you a report on how many words that they've reviewed, also how many mistakes mistakes you've had and give you kind of like a summary of your journey as you're learning to correct your spelling mistakes. And I always thought that was pretty neat. They had some other fun stats in there that I can't remember. Oh, it might have been like new words or like longest words or like kind of like fun creative things that they were throwing in there. So it'd be fun to have something for your keyboard that's similar in that space. Yeah, I actually I, I use Grammarly as well. And I got to the point where I really want it for Vim. So I looked into, do they have an API that I can shell out to or a command line? <laughs> I did, you know, the obvious me thing. Turns out, no, but now I want that because they actually do a fantastic job and I've come to sort of rely on it. I'll compose things in Vim if they're longer, but then I'll bring them into a random text area in the web because then Grammarly kicks in and starts telling me stuff. And I'm, I believe I'm on the free version and haven't actually paid for it yet, but the free version still gives plenty. Um, there's weird like sentiment analysis. So as I'm typing emails, they're letting me know like with an emoji, are you, is it a happy, are you like a peace sign or is this a disgruntled email? And I'm like, oh, okay, interesting. I didn't realize that they had that sort of semantic analysis of it. I have noticed they do something that seems very clever and also a little mean is if you are on the free service and you haven't upgraded to the paid service that as they are reviewing your text and letting you know, they'll highlight some of the mistakes, but then they'll also show at the bottom, they're like, you have five other mistakes. You should upgrade and we'll show you what those are. And I just start to panic and I'm like, what are the, how, how big of a deal are they? What are I the other five? <laughs> what am I about to send into the world? So it's very clever marketing on their part, but also a little mean. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not features. Let's face it, slow, confusing UX is so last decade. Clubhouse is lightning fast, built for today's software teams with only the features and best practices you need to succeed and nothing more. Here are a few highlights about Clubhouse. They have flexible workflows, 
easily customize workflow states for teams or projects of any size. They also offer advanced filtering where you can quickly filter by project or team to see how everything is progressing. And they also offer sprint planning. Set your weekly priorities with iterations and let Clubhouse run the schedule. Clubhouse ties into your existing tools, services, and workflow. Get notifications or create a story in Slack. Update the status of a story with a pull request. Preview designs from Figma links. Build your own integration with our API and more. And last but not least, they offer enjoyable collaboration. Easy drag and drop UI, dark mode, emoji reactions, and more. When you're doing your best work and your team is clicking, life is good. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams up to 10 users, and they're offering listeners of the Bike Shed two free months on any paid plan with unlimited users and access to premium features. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash bike shed. That's clubhouse.io slash bike shed, just one word. Thanks again to Clubhouse for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. So changing topics just a bit, Joelle Kenville, another thought botter here in the Boston office, mentioned to me one day if I had read one of the latest posts that Dan Abramoff had shared. Dan Abramoff is the co-author of Redux and Create React app. And on his website, he'd recently shared a blog post called Goodbye Clean Code. And it had such an interesting title to it. And when Joelle asked me if I'd read that, I hadn't. So I went and looked it up. And it is a really good post. And it's something that I think you and I could have a lot of fun talking about. So I'll kind of give like a, a brief overview of what Dan mentioned in the blog post, and we can go from there. So the article has a pretty fun beginning, and it sets the scene with starting off with saying it was a late evening. And that seems trivial, but I love that for a couple of reasons, because it kind of like shows the mindset that someone's in. And I may be projecting a bit, but I imagine in the late evening, like, so you're making isolated decisions in the late evening. You're perhaps a little tired if you've worked a full day, and you're also in that creative space where perhaps you're scratching an itch. So that's where Dan's journey begins. He was looking at some code that his colleague had checked into Master. And while looking at that code, he noticed that there was some duplication across several of the classes. So the code itself, I don't want to get in too many of the details. Dan does a a great job of highlighting some examples of that code. But it's essentially handling the math for resizing certain shapes. So there's ovals, there's rectangles, there's headers, text box. And if you move them right or left in a different direction, how it should resize. So there's a good bit of math that's in that code. And Dan noticed that there's duplication essentially between like the direction and the shapes. So looking at that code, he decides to dry it up and remove some of that duplication and refers to this as the code needs to be clean because right now it's in a messy state. So Dan spends some time on refactoring the code. He extracts the duplication, dries it up, and the code is half the size. The duplication is gone, and changing the behavior for direction or shape could be updated in one place. He's feeling really great about it and checks it into master. And then, funny enough, the next day when he goes into work, his boss asks him to revert the change, which he does. But he is very honest and says it takes him a while to realize why he reverted that change. So I'm going to pause there because I know I'm giving a lot of background, but I think there's a lot of content here to discuss. And um, Dan also shares the reasons as to why he realizes his manager asked him to do the correct thing and why that was the correct thing. But what do you think so far, Chris? I'm very into the idea. I think the blog post is somewhat incendiary in my mind in that it's goodbye clean code. So it's saying like this whole idea, this theme of clean code, let's get rid of that. And clean code, to me, encompasses more than this blog post is talking about. And so the specific things around duplication, I think I totally agree with, and I would love to talk a little bit more about that. But more generally, like there's other stuff in the context of clean code 
my understanding of the term clean code, it originates back to a book by um, Robert Martin, aka Uncle Bob Martin, who is an interesting character on his own, but we'll set that aside for now. But that book said a lot of different things, and a bunch of it I very much agree with. And I don't even know what specifically it talked about in terms of duplication, probably a couple different things. But Goodbye Clean Code feels like a overly broad title for what was otherwise, I think, an excellent story. And I really liked that he approached it as a story. He told a story, he told about his own growth and the way his thinking has changed around this. Because it is, uh, I definitely had a period earlier on where I would have been like, oh, those lines of code look the same. I have to change it. I have to extract some function and make that clean. And so that aesthetic quality and, and all of those sort of things, I definitely resonate with a lot of this. But again, sort of overbroad in my mind. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I was interested in sharing so much of the context of the stories, because like you mentioned, I really appreciate the arc of the story because it's Mm -hmm. very relatable. Like I completely understand that if you're reading code and as you're going through it, you start to see some duplication. And if you are familiar with extracting and getting rid of that duplication, you can get excited to be like, I'm going to make this clean in air quotes and remove all of that out. What I also really love is as he continues to share his journey in that particular work, as he realized over time that it wasn't the correct change, the main reasons is that he didn't consult the person who wrote it, which can be interpreted as a fairly aggressive move. If someone on your team has spent a fair amount of time writing code, they've checked it in, it's been approved, and it works. And then if someone else comes along and decides to rewrite that code, especially if it's in a close space as to when that or close time frame as to when that code was entered, it seems like you felt the need to come along and change code, even though the code didn't need to be changed, other than the fact that you felt like this was an improvement on the existing code. So that one in itself has some pretty interesting implications for interacting with the team. Yeah, I actually locked in on that little bit because I both agreed with the idea largely of coming back and altering someone's work after it's been merged in does feel like sort of a pointed, like, oh, you did it wrong, let me fix it. It has connotations that are complicated. And I'm a firm believer that code review is the place to have that conversation. If code makes it in, then... Unless it's actually causing a problem, I would not go revisit that code until something else brought me into that space in the code base. That said, this does sort of brush up into the idea of, Dan actually uses the phrasing like, if you go and mess with their code, and the idea of ownership, like, oh, I wrote this code, it's mine. I think one of the things that we try pretty strong to do is to separate ourselves a little bit from the code. We are adding, we're moving around code within the code base, but that's we all have a shared ownership over this thing. And so while I do agree with the sort of psychological complexities there, the bit that brushes up against my code versus your code is a part where I'm like, oh, I want to be careful with that because I don't own any portion of this code base, nor should you or should anyone in my mind. Yeah, I completely agree. And I often find myself when I'm reviewing PRs and looking at code that other people have written, the context I'll use when I'm talking about changes is I'll say, like, we could do this or we could do that. It's very rarely that I'm saying, like, you could change this or you could do that because I am using that more formal, like, we own this together and we're in this together. And so it's that kind of idea. And any changes that person makes may benefit me down the road or vice versa if I'm making changes for them. So I tend to approach it from that shared ownership of how we want to construct the code together. So that kind of covers some of like the human feelings and aspects that will go into how it can impact our team if we're rewriting code without really communicating with that person at all. But there's also the technical aspect of like, what does it mean to write clean code? And why is it that removing that duplication felt like the cleaner approach and that somehow having duplication is like a dirty state of the code? I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, again, the like 
the generalization of clean code versus not, I feel like is a, a misnomer just in terms of my interpretation of what that phrase means. But focusing in just a little bit more on the idea of duplication, I think this is a really good example highlighting the idea of duplication is bad and we don't want it, but we don't want duplication of ideas, of fundamental concepts. It's fine to have structural duplication. And that's a theme that I've seen increasingly in the sort of mindshare on the internet of people that write code for a living. Duplication is bad was the ethos. And then people are sort of reacting to that. of like, well, I mean, the things that we're doing to avoid duplication are often worse. The early premature abstractions that don't fully understand things that are harder to change. This is a great example where there are a bunch of lines of code that look almost identical. But that's what they look like right now. They happen to have structural duplication, but what if one of them needs to change in an independent way? What if like a parallelogram suddenly shows up in our app and like parallelograms are weird, we gotta handle them differently. And if you've done this abstraction and they're all handled with some other function that does it, now it needs to have a switch statement for parallelograms. And it's like, well, what if we just had duplicate it in the first place? So I definitely believe in that whole idea. Again, separate from clean code as a whole, we can maybe hold on to some of the ideas there, but duplication, definitely open to some of it. Yeah, Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen have a, a really great example of this in the book, 99 Bottles of OOP. And I was really fortunate a while back to go to one of Sandy Metz's in-person classes that she offers where it's three days. And the first activity that we do on the first day is we write software that's going to print out the lyrics to 99 Bottles. And so Sandy gives us like half an hour or 15 minutes to go ahead and start working on it. And then we pause and start looking at the code we're writing and we'll start to reflect on like, what did people start trying to extract and start trying to avoid? And she's like, let me show you my version of when I first tackled this. And it's just the lyrics. It's all text. And it's just thrown into one giant method. And she's like, that's it. It does the job. It prints. It passes the test. Like, this is all we needed. And while it goes against a lot of the design and a lot of the rules that we learn when we're trying to write clean or great software, it gets the job done. And it kind of brings back home the idea of like everything that we learn in the pursuit of clean code is really there that's meant for us to use as a tool, but it's not necessarily like rules that we're supposed to follow. I've noticed in my coding career as well that that's something that has shifted for me because in the beginning, I was also in that space where I'm like, oh, there's duplication. We can get rid of that and I will have done my job and I am an excellent software engineer for doing so. And then over time, I've really started to appreciate some of the duplication, especially in test. If it keeps a test easier to read, I am all for an amount of duplication versus trying to extract too much where then I'm going to lose some of the important context in the test. But even in application code as well, uh, there was an example recently this week where the code base I was working on, we have a section where we are presenting some text, basically a description for something that we need to generate. And we're doing it a couple different places in the application and each place is doing it in its own way. And that was fine until we noticed there was a bug in two of the places. And I'm like, okay, now feels like the right time. I have felt some pain. So let me reach into like that clean code toolbox and find the right tool to then implement so I don't feel this pain anymore. But it feels, again, like this thing I want to reach for when it's going to help me. I'm not doing this just to sort of justify that I'm a software engineer and I know what I'm doing. And I realize that may sound a little harsh (laughs) the way I'm saying it because I don't mean it that way at all. I think we are all pursuing the best design. And we have a lot of fun with it, too. We want a reason to sort of like practice and flex these skills and see how they help us. And we need some space to experiment. But I think there are definitely times where we lose out because we have reached for something too quickly. And we also can lose some of the humanity side of it, too. Like just because we're pre-optimizing something to make it faster, but we've made it less legible 
then we've really sort of hurt the next person that's going to come along and work in that code. Yeah, there are definitely times where I, I like to code golf or I like to revisit things in Refactor and see if I can change the shape. But then I always take a step back and look at it. I'm like, is this better than what was there before? Is it a better representation, cleaner? Based on what I know about the world, is it easier to change? And it's actually a anecdote that Joe Ferris, our CTO, was telling at one point where he was describing a PR that he put up that did some slightly complicated things within the code base that he was working on. And someone looked at it and said, like, oh, that's clever. And Joe's internal reaction was like, oh, crap. Like, that's a bad reaction when someone's like, oh, huh, I don't even know how all of that works. Or that's interesting. I'd have to spend some time to unwind that and fully understand it. But it seems neat that it works. And earlier in my career, I'd be like, yeah, say that about my code. That's great. And now I'm like, yeah, I want the most straightforward, most obvious code. But again, the thing that's easy to change, the thing that duplication when it's a core idea of our logic, let's not duplicate that. But otherwise, I don't know, probably some duplication. It's fine. It's so funny to me that you say that because I've noticed that I will now add that as like a caveat when I tell someone, I'm like, oh, that's really clever. And I'm like, oh, but not in the bad way. Like in the good way, it's clever. <laughs> it's on the list of words like magic and clever that are like, no, 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 but like <laughs> still good. So in regards to clean code in this, uh, I'll keep going with this metaphor of like a toolbox that we have where you can reach in. What are some of your like clean code tools that you like to reach for? I think probably one of the strongest things that remains true for me is the... I do think of the aesthetic quality of code. And so clean code in terms of like, does it look right to me is definitely a thing that I will hold. But the question there isn't duplication. It's per the view that I have of the code, are things at the same level of abstraction? Per the squint test, do the colors look roughly the same? Do the shapes look roughly the same? Do we have wild variations in indentation implying different scopes and things like that? Or do we have a relatively straightforward or consistent structure? And actually, Dan's example, when I looked at it, the like bad example that he refactored away from when he was in the long, long ago, I was like, oh, that looks beautiful. Look at all those shapes. They line up. It's so nice. And it's very, very obvious what's going on looking at that code. So I think, yeah, the aesthetics of the squint test and then more generally of does this say in the most concrete way and as close to the human words that I would use to describe to a actual human standing in front of me, how close is the code to that? That's the litmus test that I like. And that's what my measure of clean code is. Yeah, that is one of the areas that I think it's kind of hard with the clean code. I very much agree with you when it comes to like the squint test, but that's also very subjective. And so it's hard. And also when it comes to like naming, is this friendly to the next person who's going to read? There's a very hard way to measure that. I'm not sure if there is a way to measure that unless someone at a university is working on a way to measure that that I don't know about. I'm pretty sure that's our job though. That's why our job is somewhat hard is that part like the actual connecting together of the plumbing and making a request and response and rendering some HTML to that like that's not the hard part. The hard part is doing that making it work and then also making it so that the next human can read it and I also do not know how to quantify that human squishy bit there at the end. I think you're very much right in the sense of like that's what makes the job so much of a craft is figuring out where can you do right by the code and follow the sort of like clean standard, but also in the sense you are cultivating over time the feedback of like what do people tend to understand? What do I find easy to follow? What does my team find easier to follow? And then also expand outside of that so you're not just programming for you and your team, but for anyone else that might join the team. I've heard of one good litmus test is how would a junior feel reading this code or ask a junior to read the code? 
code and ask them where they struggle or what makes sense to them and what questions they have. So that would be one way to measure it as well. But otherwise, it is very much just part of the craft. And I think that's why we get excited to use some of these new tools, but it can be to a detriment. I think some of my big like basics for when I'm looking for clean code is trying to look for measurements that aren't necessarily following a particular software pattern or design, but it's more in the, do I have test? I want all of my code to have test. So that way I feel secure and have some documentation as to like what this code is doing and I'm documenting important user flows. I think the other one that I'm often looking for is how many side effects are taking place in my code. Ooh, side effects. You must have been writing some Elm lately. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I wish. (laughs) I wish I was writing Elm lately. Uh, That one's important to me because that's often where I feel pain. So my clean code philosophies will often go back to where have I felt pain in the past? Where have I watched others feel pain as well? And that's one is the mutation of a data structure or a variable and an unexpected side effect if we're raising, because in each time we're calling that function, it's no longer in a predictable state. Like I may have a different outcome each time I call that function. So that's one area as well. And then another one that I'll typically uh, look for is commented out code. So that one is another sort of like... That one's in the book. Uh, which one? There's a section in the clean code book that is specifically don't comment out code, delete it, which is just a strong adage that we hold to. But it's interesting that, yeah, that's in the clean code book. And I think we're all, I hope we're all still on board with that one. <laughs> so not goodbye that part of clean code. Which, you know, going by sort of like the the pain measurement... I don't think commented out code has ever really caused me any pain. It's just more of a distraction. And it's as long as it's commented out and it's not running, then I have never like spent a lot of time like trying to understand or undo it. But it also does feel like something that will take away from my productivity. So I guess in that sense, it does cause some pain because I'm going to look to remove it because it is a distraction for me. I don't know its importance in the system. Pain is perhaps too strong of a word, but like if we say cost, does it have some cost? It does. There's a little bit of cognitive load. There's a little bit of anchoring to an older version of the system, but I want to live free and change it however makes sense now. So delete that old code. Bye, old code. You served me well, but you're no longer welcome here. Maybe I'll come back someday. Gets a good friend. I love how you use that term anchoring because, yeah, it absolutely it suddenly like sets your world like, oh, this must be important. It's still here. And you no longer know what's important anymore at that point. But not important enough to actually be part of the runtime of the application. Uh, It's a weird uh, purgatory of importance. And then I think the other one that's important to me is I want my functions and my classes to do specific actions. So if I jump into a specific file, how confident do I feel about what that class is achieving? And how do I need to jump to a bunch of other files to trace its behavior and figure out what's happening? So I want my functions and my classes to to have focused roles and focused jobs as to what they're doing. So yeah, I think those are kind of my clean code philosophies that I'm, I'm usually looking for at like a higher level. Well, moving on very slightly, we do have a listener question. And once again, folks, thank you so much for sending in listener questions. We really appreciate them. Please continue to do so. Hosts at bikeshed.fm. It's a great place to email those questions. But in today's question, Kevin, well, he starts by saying, first of all, thanks for the Bike Shed podcast. I listen every week. You're welcome, Kevin. It's our pleasure. But his question is, I work in a digital agency developing Ruby on Rails apps, and we've seen an uptick in the number of clients who want us to build apps that are subject to some of the more strict policies out there, like, uh, and then there's a bunch of acronyms. I know HIPAA, that's one of them, SOC1 and SOC2. I don't know if you're supposed to pronounce those. FedRAMP, I think, is one of them. Lots of acronyms related to government and other sort of policies. That was just me rambling there, not actually a part of the, that's not what uh, Kevin wrote in, but 
Moving back to what Kevin actually said, we typically use AWS and DigitalOcean servers, so we aren't hosting things ourselves, but neither is our client in many cases. We end up spinning up AWS servers and doing the server management stuff because the client doesn't have the in-house expertise to do so. I'm curious how ThoughtBot handles these engagements. Do you just rely 100% on partners like Heroku for this and direct any inquiries regarding security to Heroku? Many of the security standards aren't just technical, but also people and process-based. Do you have any shared responsibility model for things in between ThoughtBot and your clients? Thanks. So, Steph, what are your thoughts? You recently gave a whole workshop about ThoughtBot and healthcare and health tech and all that. I did. Yeah, we should include a link to that in the show notes because that has a lot of good content around this particular topic. Uh, So it's kind of the quick answer to the question. We avoid taking on a lot of that risk because we are not healthcare experts or compliance experts in that space. We are agile experts. But when it comes to the compliance space, we're going to rely heavily on those that are experts. So we will go with companies and platforms that are already built for the compliance and then also ask them questions. So Aptable is someone that I've used in the past as well as Heroku Shield. And if we have compliance questions, Uh, They typically have really great support that we can reach out to them and ask for them for help. Some of the teams that we've worked with, if they are a smaller team just getting up and started, if we get to the point where we feel like we need more compliance knowledge, then we will suggest hiring someone at that point. A number of the teams that we've worked with in the healthcare space do have their own team on site as well that will provide a lot of that guidance for them. So we mostly rely on others to fulfill that expert knowledge and duty. There are times that we've signed a BAA with clients, the business associate agreement. So that does give us capability to have access to some of the production data and access to the healthcare data that they're maintaining. But that's about as much as the shared agreement that we'll have in regards to taking on any responsibility. Uh, And the end of that question, I think Kevin really made a a really great point saying that a lot of the security standards aren't really just technical, but they're also people and process based. So people and communication is often where we will specialize in working with folks to have strong communication skills with each other. And that will often support a lot of the compliance concerns, because the more that we're communicating and sharing our experience with working with compliance companies, then we can help them make smart decisions around making sure they're not sharing sensitive data and say designs or sharing it in Trello if they haven't signed a BAA with Trello. So I think that's a really great point is to focus often on the people as part of a, a strong way that we can contribute to that team. Yeah, I think you've summarized our approach very well. The The one thing that I would add to that is what you described was specific to healthcare and compliance and things, but I think it's also just a representation of our more general philosophy, which is we should spend our time working on the things that we or our clients are subject matter experts around and where we can outsource, say it's provisioning servers. Sure, we're doing that on AWS because we don't want to host servers in a closet somewhere. That's not our core competency. And similarly, we use Stripe for processing credit cards and things because we don't want to have to manage that and the complexity around it. So the question of buy versus build is one that we encounter a lot. And in general, we prefer to buy. We find it's much better to spend the very limited time that we have on our teams focused on the core thing that our clients need. And I think that's generally been very effective for us. Occasionally, you reach a scale where you're like, I'm spending too much money on this particular thing. We should in-house it. But I personally resist that for as long as humanly possible. Because like you said, the answer to that is you have to bring someone onto the team whose sole purpose is that. And that can be very costly, and it can be a distraction, and it can be this whole other competency that you now have to develop, and that's not a trivial thing. Yeah, that's an excellent summary. I really like the way you propose that the whole like buy versus build so we can focus on our competencies of the design and development. And then we can lean on the companies who have already invested a lot of money and a lot of effort into making sure that they're keeping all the applications compliant. 
So yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, that was a really great question. And uh, we'll be sure to include a link to the Health Tech Workshop as you may find some helpful information in that as well. Cool. Well, uh, should we wrap up? Yeah, I think it's that time. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter. Or me at S. Vicari. Or you can reach us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.